Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. All the banks are broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians, to prison, it will continue. gentlemen welcome back to another exciting episode of thriller insider today is april 10th 2021 and uh that's right i think everybody has realized that um they're gonna have to save themselves especially when it comes to bitcoin right there's just not enough of it to go around and that is what is being talked about this week in the bitcoin space there was big news, eh, I should say, big talk around the Nixon seminar. It's a conservative realism and national security monthly gathering of senior statesmen and rising specialists in various aspects of great power, competition, and American national security. And they gather around to discuss issues of current and continuing importance to the nation's interests. That's right. They've been doing this for a very long time. They do it on a monthly basis. And um, you can actually head over to Nixon's seminar. And this month, um, they had on um, Peter Thiel. And uh, he went on there and... um, blew everybody's minds (laughs) and uh, a lot of people were taken aback by what he said and this isn't something that a lot of us in the bitcoin and crypto space you know haven't heard before you've heard this before you know this stuff but i think a lot of people that were probably in, in the in the um Outside of that, probably the, the Forbes and, and the, the financial Twitters and the uh, the uh, Business Insider people, they never heard it expressed this way, right? They've never heard Bitcoin actually enter the geopolitical stage like this, right? 
And that's what we're going to be discussing today. Because this is the first time where Bitcoin has, I can I can officially say, entered the geopolitical stage. And what's interesting is for the first time ever, we are looking at how Bitcoin is going to affect the world going forward. Not only monetary-wise, but technology-wise as well. And what you start to see is the world changes in a different way because of the effects of Bitcoin. And we'll touch on that more later in this episode. I will say this is going to be a very beefy episode. It's going to be very long, but it's going to be one of those episodes where you're going to be thankful that you listen to it because you're going to come out the other side knowing that not only do you understand the implications that Bitcoin has going forward, but you realize the severity that Bitcoin plays on the geopolitical stage for years to come and probably this coming decade. Now, we're going to start off by listening to somebody by the name of Peter Zihan. When it comes to geopolitics, there is nobody brighter in the world than this guy. He literally dominates everybody when it comes to explaining how the different forces around the world counteract each other and how these countries play off one another. Now, he's going to touch on some very touchy subjects. A lot of them are triggers for some people. I'm not going to cut out some of these things because, to be honest with you, they are a part of our life now, right? They happened (laughs) no matter how painful it was, you know, no matter what side you were on, it occurred, right? So I'm leaving him in. He talks about him. Um, so I'm leaving him in. Now, he's going to talk about a lot of different things. But the reason I'm putting this talk in is because this is going to explain a lot for you when it comes to understanding what the landscape looks like now in its current state geopolitically. Okay, so take a listen. about our future in the world, but we're all working 
from a an understanding that is now 30 to 40 years out of date. So allow me to kind of reset the picture. Uh, at the end of World War II, the Americans created a new age, a new order, the first order of the world. In it, we told everyone that we would use our navies to patrol the global oceans so that everyone could go anywhere at any time, interact with any partner, participate in any supply system, bring any commodity home to produce any product, then send it out for export. For the first time in history, you didn't have to do any of that with military escort because the Americans took care of it. And that ended the imperial age and brought us globalization and free trade. It worked because it allowed the global system to develop as a containment strategy. We basically created this order. We paid everyone to be on our side. But the Cold War ended 30 years ago. And the Americans have been edging away from that system ever since. And without that security parameter of the Soviet foe, the Americans lost interest in maintaining the free trade order. Now, let's assume for the moment that the Americans decide that they want to carry this forward into the future. Well, maintaining a global system, maintaining a global order requires three things. First of all, it requires a political culture that is interested in that system. Now, I would argue that the Americans lost that political culture long before Trump became president in 2016. But with the storming of the Capitol complex this January 6th, the U.S. doesn't even have a political culture right now. So until the Americans can knit their culture back together, the Americans are simply incapable of having a foreign policy that's more than perfunctionary. Now, let's assume for the moment that, that President Joe Biden is the guy that he can do this, he can get us all back on the same side and lead us out of the world. How long do you think that's gonna take him? A month? His whole term? More time than he has? You know, this is, this is a decade-long cultural transformation. We're done, at least for now. The second thing that you would need is a global military footprint to enforce the peace, to patrol the global waterways. This is total American troops stationed abroad since World War II. It's, it's been trending down for decades. That ship has sailed, literally. Americans haven't simply decided to leave. Americans have already left. The security underpinnings of the global order are already gone. And what is left is simply running on inertia. And the third thing that you would need to maintain a global system is global economic interests. And Americans have never had that. We have a continental economy, and if we had invested that economy into the wider world, then the global order would not have been a bribe. We would have just been another empire. Now, check out India. India never joined the global order, and so it never gained full access to the advantages of the order in capital, in industry, in technology. Economically, it is this decision not to join the global system that is the root of India's development lag. It was a choice. And culturally, it is this decision not to join the global order that is the root of Indians' inferiority complex because everyone that Indians compare themselves to did join the order. But the order is now collapsing. And anyone who adapted themselves to benefit, for example, China, now has a lot to lose. 
but India? Sure. In India, not joining, India lost an opportunity to rise. But in not joining, India is not condemned to fall with the rest. So that, that's our first big point. The structural issues that created the world that we understand, they're gone. And for India, that's fine because India never joined that world. Next up, let's talk demographics. Now, what we've got here is a standard demographic profile. Children at the bottom, young adults, mature adults, retirees at the top, men on one side, women on the other. This is Mexico, and this is what we call a consumption-led system. Because anytime you have a lot of people below roughly age 40, it's all about the spending on kids, on cars, on homes, on higher education. It's what drives a modern system. Now, when American political and business leaders look at a demography like Mexico, we really like what we see. All those young people are relatively new into the workforce. They're relatively low value add. So the Mexicans excel at low and mid-skilled manufacturing and assembly. That's not what Americans do. Americans do the high end. We do the design. So the propensity for integration of these systems is huge. Second, all those young Mexicans consume a lot of products. So Mexico became America's largest trading partner in calendar year 2019, and it's a position they're going to maintain for pretty much the rest of our lives. This is a partner. This is not. The Koreans had a baby bus 40 years ago that they never recovered from. So they now have a lot of people in their 50s. Now, those folks have been at their jobs for literally decades, very skilled, very high value added, and going head-to-head -head with the American workforce. In addition, not a lot of Koreans in their 20s and 30s. So the Koreans have to export all that product. America will never have a trade surplus with the Koreans. Now, between approximately 1980 and 2015, the world was kind of in this beautiful demographic moment. All of the world's economies were either consumption or export-led. Here's a number of them in the year 2000. More or less a perfect balance. But 20 years later, we are all 20 years older, and the picture's changed. The global demographic of high consumption has peaked, and it only can go down from here. As to the export-led economies, they're aging into mass retirement. The year 2022 is the year that most of the advanced world shifts into kind of a post-growth system. Now, in the United States, Americans are kind of a partial exception. And the generation that matters the most are our baby boomers. Now, by some measures, the American baby boomer cadre is just like the baby boomer cadre everywhere else. World War II happened, the soldiers came home, they got married, they built lives for themselves, they had lots of children. Those children are the baby boomers. And there is a boomer cadre in Japan, in the United States, uh, in China, in Germany, in the UK, pretty much throughout the world. Anyone who participated in the war in mass. Now, as you age, the way you invest evolves. So when you're 35, you invest a very small sliver of a very small income for the future. When you're 55, you invest a much larger wedge of a much larger income. And then when you're 64 and three quarters, every spare cent that you have, you put away for the future. So you would generate more and more capital 
at a higher and higher velocity. And as you near retirement, you become a little desperate to get that last little bit of income. So you start putting this huge amount of money into projects that when you were younger might not have made sense. So municipal bonds give way to foreign bonds, give way to foreign stocks. American investments give way to European investments, give way to Indian investments. The capital inflow from the world's boomer cadre is the single largest reason for India's growth surge for the past decade. And it's almost over because in calendar year 2022, the majority of the world's baby boomers, Americans included, move into mass retirement. And when that happens, all of those far-reaching investments get liquidated and it goes back into the most secure investments you can have, such as American government treasury bills and even cash. Because once you retire, you never add to your stack of investments. So the whole world right now is in its biggest capital glut ever. And it's over next year. In that, American boomers are just like everybody else. But American boomers did one thing that no one else did. They had kids. And the American millennials are unique in that they're really the only ones out there. There aren't Japanese or German or Italian millennials. So they are providing the ballast for our consumption system today. And they will be investing tomorrow. But for the rest of the world, it's a very different picture. Let me give you an idea of the scale. What I've done here is I've stacked up the consumption-led economies in the world today. This is all of them. And this is what they'll look, assuming 0% economic growth, which I realize is not realistic, but we've got to start somewhere. Here's where they will be in 2030. Here's the world's consumption, or I'm sorry, the world's export-led systems. They're aging out. They disappear as a class. Now, today, we only have one post-growth economy. That's Japan. They've already aged into mass retirement. But if you fast forward 10 years and look at the demographics, like folks, folks, this is already over. Consumption has already peaked. Production is peaking right now. Global capital supplies peak this year. None of them will return in our lifetime. You want to grow some more 40-year-olds? It takes 40 years. And all of this was before coronavirus. Coronavirus has driven all the consumption-led systems offline and into recession at the same time. So if you're an exporting nation, it really doesn't matter if you can beat the virus because you have no one to sell to. Let's look at the comparison that everyone in India loves to make. Now, here we've got India and China in the year 2000. But as we all know, the Chinese have a one-child policy. So you fast forward that today, and China has now the world's fastest aging demography. Best case scenario, assuming nothing else goes wrong, in the year 2100, there'll be fewer than half as many Chinese as there are today. In calendar year 2020, the Chinese birth rate collapsed, dropped by almost a quarter. And remember, it takes nine months to have a kid. That, that means the birth rate in 2020 reflected 2019 conditions. They haven't had their coronavirus crash yet. Now look at India today. It's aging too. India might be resistant to deglobalization, but it's urbanized right alongside everyone else. India's birth rate began to contract 25 years ago, and it, that contraction sharply accelerated a decade ago. That means India in 2021 is aging at a similar rate to what China aged at back in 1980. 
That would suggest in the worst case scenario, India still has 40 years of demographic dividends to reap. That's great. So that's our second big point. India faces little of the demographic pressure that plagues not just China, but most of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no clouds in these silver linings. India has the world's worst sex imbalance. In 2030, there will be 50 million surplus men under 45, concentrated in the Hindu belt. That is a social and a political stability issue. If Indian women today think that there's issues in Indian gender relations now, I mean, look, look out. In, in consumption-based systems, having half your population exist is, in essence, a lower caste, has implications for technological progress, investment capacity, and, of course, consumption. Let me put that into a little bit more context. On the left, we are looking at population density. On the right, we're looking at per capita income. So on the left, the red and the orange are the particularly densely populated regions, while blue and green are less dense. On the right, the red and orange are the poorer regions, while the blue and green are the wealthier ones in per capita terms. There's a moderately strong correlation between population density and personal economic performance, particularly in the Hindu belt. Now, I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard before here. For India, this contest between population and prosperity has always been an issue. My point is that in a world in which global capital supplies are about to collapse, this disconnect is going to sharpen. It will not go away. But at least it's a problem that is a familiar one. It isn't like India is going to be struggling with the collapse of a trade-based model or a consumption-based model or an export-based model or a capital-intensive model. The problems India will have are the problems India already knows. You have methods for dealing with them. They're not perfect. But at least your basic understanding of your domestic economy is not going to change. It's the devil you know. The devil China knows is a disaster. I can give a presentation for three hours about how China is going to be a failed state and not exist in a decade, but this is really the one that matters the most. It's the islands off the coast, Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore. The Chinese call it the first island chain. And there is no period in the long history of the Han people in which China has been able to economically interact with the lands beyond the chain ever, except right now under the American-led order. Because the basic tenet of the order is that the Americans force everyone to be on the same side and no one interferes with anyone else's economic trade. If the Americans leave, that ends. China is only successful because the Americans are enabling it to be. But the Americans are getting out of that business. Now, there are two countries that theoretically could take America's place and enable China's future success, and they are Japan and India. What we've got here is a map that shows all the energy flows that go into China. Now, 80% of China's oil is imported. 85% of that flows by India. Now, Japan's navy is fully blue water, so it can interdict shipping to and from China nearly anywhere. Japan's navy has the range to reach the Persian Gulf, where most of this crude comes from. But what Japan cannot do 
is reach the Gulf if the path is hostile, and that is where India comes in. Not only can India reach the Gulf by itself now, India can interdict anyone attempting to approach the Gulf from the east. So that's the third big point. No one in East Asia can access the Persian Gulf without India's express sign-off. India is the most important country in determining whether China will survive the next few decades. It's entirely up to you. And this all might be happening sooner than you think. First of all, we are likely to have an energy crisis in the next few months. Now, you may remember back during the Obama administration, the Americans and the Iranians cut a deal where Iran would cancel its nuclear program if in exchange it was rehabilitated. There were a lot of Americans who thought that deal was bad. Trump was one of them. And Donald Trump canceled the deal and applied a maximum pressure campaign to destroy the Iranian economy, which has been broadly successful. Now, under the new president, Biden, the talk is whether or not that deal is going to be revised. It's not, because the circumstances have changed. The Iranians are kind of over a barrel right now, and the Americans, if there is going to be a new deal, they want a much stricter one that restricts Iranian policies. To that end, the Iranians realize they don't have, enough, have anything to trade, so they've gone out to try to establish new chits. So, around New Year's, they started hijacking ships in the Gulf, specifically a South Korean chemicals tanker, thinking that that would get the Americans' attention. It didn't. Trump did nothing. Biden did nothing. We don't care. Because of the shale revolution, we don't care about global energy markets. So expect the Iranians to kind of up the ante and grab bigger and bigger ships in order to get people's attention. That obviously has consequences for energy shipments. Second, the Americans have had a sharp falling out with the Russians over everything from cyber crime to cyber stalking to election, um, excuse me, election interference to general propaganda. But because the Americans don't care about energy anymore, the Americans are preparing a series of sanctions against Russian energy exports. So now all of a sudden we have a potential for an energy crisis both in the Persian Gulf and in the former Soviet space. And losing trans-Suez shipments this week has certainly not helped. This can all blow up very quickly, and the Americans are not going to be a guarantor of energy shipments. If anything, they're going to interfere with them. And then we've got American-Chinese relations. On his way out the door, Donald Trump rolled a couple of grenades into the bilateral relationship. He called what was going on in Zhejiang a genocide, because, you know, it is. And he said that any American political leader, any American bureaucrat can visit Taiwan in their official capacity as an American representative. That's about that far from formal recognition. On his first day in office, President Biden reaffirmed both policies. In addition, he sent two aircraft carriers into the South China Sea to do military exercises within sight of the Chinese military bases there. We have new policies on Hong Kong. We have new policies on Tibet. The Biden administration has doubled down on all of the sanctions and tariffs that the Trump administration administered to China, including those on Huawei and CNOOC. And the Americans' new trade representative, Catherine Tai, that's the woman in the top left, she's Taiwanese. 
The Chinese perceive this as a full court press against their interests, and they are not wrong. On the Chinese side of the equation, they realize that their demography is sharply terminal. They realize that their export-led economic model is in danger. And so they are closing ranks, demonizing outsiders, and hunkering down for an economic breakdown. Choose your measure. Demographics, trade, military reach, geographic exposure, finance, energy, the dragon is not only a myth, it's a dying one. And what does this all mean for the elephant? Opportunity. Now that doesn't mean there aren't challenges ahead and one of them is going to hit now. There are three new strains of coronavirus that matter. The first one out of the United Kingdom is more communicable. It is probably already the dominant strain in both India and the United States. The second one out of South Africa is cross-species transmissible with rodents, which means it will never go away. We now know for certain that we will all need boosters forever. The third one, the Brazilian variant, bypasses pre-existing naturally gained immunity. Now, luckily, all the vaccines that we know of so far in the West work against all of the variants, and all of the Western vaccine manufacturers are already working on phase three studies for boosters, which will all be ready by this October. So for the Americans, this is a relatively minor issue. But every American who gets a booster shot is someone else in the rest of the world who can't get a core shot. So this is something that is now the new normal. Even worse, for any country who pursued a herd immunity strategy, whether on purpose or, accident, or accidentally, that includes Sweden and Brazil and India, you now need to do it all over again until you can achieve mass vaccination complete with a booster schedule. Which brings us to the fourth and final takeaway. Globally, we aren't even halfway through with coronavirus. Now that Peter has kind of reset the picture on what everything looks like now in today's state of the world here in 2021, we have a clear understanding of what Peter Thiel was actually talking about, right? I'm going to play you the full 10 minute clip of where Peter and the rest of the people at the seminar actually have this discussion about China and the geopolitical stage 
with America and Bitcoin and how it all plays out together. Not the one minute, 30 second clip that was then pulled and turned into headlines around the world saying that Peter Thiel is anti-Bitcoin and Bitcoin is a Chinese weapon per se, which was all completely wrong, reported by Coindesk completely wrong, covered by everybody completely wrong, just done horribly wrong. And this is one of the reasons why we started this whole endeavor of creating our own shows, right? Is because of stuff like this. Lazy journalism said best by Denzel Washington. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. Hmm. So what do you do? That's the great question. <laughs> what is the long-term effect of too much information? One of the effects is the need to be first, not even to be true anymore. So what a responsibility you all have to be to tell the truth, not just to be first, but to tell the truth. We live in a society now where it's just first. Who cares? Get it out there. We don't care who it hurts. We don't care who we destroy. We don't care if it's true. Just say it. Sell it. Anything you practice, you'll get good at, including BS. And that was one of the main reasons why we started doing this show, right? That was one of the main reasons why I knew I could do it better. I knew people would pay to hear me deliver it this way. And honestly, when you really look at it, I knew that it's going to take an actual person with uh, honesty, uh, somebody with enough humility, uh, somebody with enough fact-checking, with enough reading and thinking, researching, more reading, listening, and sitting on an idea for a few days, formulating an opinion, trying to get that opinion to a concise idea and getting it to the sake of clarity. That way it informs the listener, you, in a much better way. I mean, that's what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. This is why I take my time on some of these things because I don't want to just shoot off the hip, right? That, that's, that's what Twitter's for, <laughs> quite frankly. If you want to see me shoot off the hip, go take a look at Twitter. You're going to you're going to see me shoot off the hip all the time. That's my that's my quick reaction. And then days later, when I had time to think about it, then this is, becomes the podcast. Right. Um, it's usually way different than what that quick Twitter reaction was. But these days we have journalists and we have news publications that do the complete opposite. Right. And unfortunately here in the crypto and Bitcoin space, when it, when it deals with money, with life changing money (laughs) at that. (laughs) And when so many people are invested, you know, their small fortunes and uh, their family's fortunes into it, you can't just make these small little mistakes. You have to put the work in quite frankly. And I, I just don't accept that, um, you know, uh, as, as, as something that you just kind of gloss over. I just take way, I just take that way more seriously. Okay. I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but let me play you that Peter Thiel clip right now.
regarding digital currency, we've seen uh, recently in the last few days that China has proposed creating their own digital currency. And I was wondering how much of a threat is that to the dollar, uh, to, to the dollar and its dominance of uh, world markets? And if it is a threat, what can we do about it? Well, um, you know, I think I think there's sort of a lot of different kinds of things that fall under digital currency. Presumably, the one the sort of electronic forms of money China envisions are ones where um, things can be monitored again, even more uh, granular in an even more granular way. Uh, than they're being monitored currently. Um, uh, you know, the the geopolitical thing I, I sort of wonder about is always that, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency of, of the world. You know, there are some things about that that are good for the U.S., some things that are uh, more problematic. Um, from China's point of view, they want to get, um, they don't like the U.S. having this reserve currency because it gives us, you know, a lot of leverage over, you know, Iranian oil supply chains and all sorts of things like that. Um, they like uh, they don't want the renminbi to become a reserve currency because then you have to open your capital account and you have to do all sorts of things that they they really don't want to do. Um, you know, I think the euro you could think of as you know was in part a Chinese weapon against the dollar. Didn't in the last decade it hasn't quite worked out that way, but that was you know China would have liked to see two reserve currencies like like the euro. And uh, you know even though I'm sort of a pro-crypto, pro-Bitcoin maximalist person. I, I do wonder whether at this point Bitcoin is also uh, should also be thought in part of, as a Chinese uh, financial weapon against the U.S. where it's, it, is, it threatens fiat money, but it especially threatens the, uh, the U.S. Uh, dollar and, um, and China wants to do things to weaken it. So it's sort of China is long Bitcoin and perhaps from a geopolitical perspective, uh, the U.S. should be a little bit uh, be asking some tougher questions about exactly how that works. But I, I, some, some internal stable coin in China, that, I mean, that's not, that's not a real cryptocurrency. That's just, a, you know, that's just some sort of totalitarian measuring device. Venmo uh, for the communist. Yes. Mr. Secretary, are you going to comment on that? that? That story made the front page of the journal this morning for Mr. Ambassador about China wanting to start their own Bitcoin. What do you think about that? So what, if I understand what they're doing is they're digitizing their currency. So separate from Bitcoin is still fiat currency, right? That is still mm -hmm. Chinese money that they are now digitizing. It has huge impacts for their surveillance capacity. They would pitch it as anti-fraud. You can prevent fraud from taking place. Uh, I suppose that's true. Uh, this is something I think they believe will reduce the costs of cross-border transactions as well for the Chinese. Your point about not wanting to be a reserve currency, I think, is right. I think they'd like it to be among a mix. They want to make sure that when uh, when Secretary Pompeo issues the sanctions against the Iranian leadership, that there is a way to purchase Iranian oil that we don't have the capacity to either seize, understand, or uh, impact. And so I do think these digital currencies, separate from uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, are something you'll see more countries go to. The United States has a project where we're working on it too. But we are we we will be we will be slow off the gate. It has lots of implications for us here at home, and uh, my guess is that we will not be the leader in this forefront where an authoritarian regime like China sees nearly all upside from having the capacity to issue currency or take away currency from people who act in ways that are inconsistent with uh, Xi, Xi Jinping thought. No, absolutely. You think of one of the things that gives folks freedom is the ability to walk in with a hundred dollar bill or. Or, or some type of currency and buy something without it being tracked, but the Chinese will be able to track every single purchase 
that everyone makes. Now we've freely given up that uh, that privacy in many ways with Amazon. So there's a record of everything that we purchase these days. It seems like, uh, especially during COVID. Uh, but but by taking away uh, you know hard currency that can uh, that can be used to purchase things, uh, it, it will give the Chinese Communist Party an, an enormous measure of control over the the Chinese people. Which and, and every every time they have an opportunity for more control, they'll take it. And, and as Peter pointed out, and the secretary pointed out, uh, uh, this is another big step along with facial recognition to have a a total surveillance yeah, I mean, society. They'll know every single single thing that I you, mean it, on on some level it is, it is it is really an extraordinary sociological political experiment with with no real 20th century precedent. I mean, you know, there, there are ways that, you know, probably, you know, <laughs> Stalin was still worse than G and right. probably killed more people. But, uh, but just the degree of hooks that you have into people is is just extraordinary. It's sort of like, you know, it's like sort of it, the government's, you know, in your innermost core and it's completely out. It's like the God of St. Augustine's, like totally outside you, totally inside you, yeah. knows everything about you. It's, uh, no, can you not, imagine not, how, how this will factor into the social credit Omniscient, omnimalevolent. Makes the Stasi look like amateurs. No, and the social, <laughs> the social credit score, when you when you tie in the currency uh, to everything yeah, what else. What you're spending money on yeah, and everything, yeah. You know, uh, I, quite something I, 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 I've never heard the term omnimalevolent before. <laughs> no, Peter, following up on Mike's uh, question, which I I think there's a consensus now that AI and quantum computing are the new high grounds, or at least will mm-hmm. be the high grounds for the future. And, and, and I think there's still a consensus that we have an edge uh, in both those areas. Yes. Although, again, it's uh, it's a diminished edge of where, where it was uh, a few years back. Uh, what's your advice to the Biden administration? How do we stay ahead on quantum and AI, uh, you know, keeping in mind that we're an open society and we've got all these graduate students here and that sort of thing? Uh, what, what do we need to do to, uh, to stay in the forefront? Because my, my concern is if we fall behind, we lose the high ground. Uh, we're going to be in for a rough spell. Yeah, the thing that I would say is tricky about AI is that there are you know a lot of aspects of the technology that I think we don't actually want to be pursuing too much because um, it's it's AI is what you need for a surveillance society. Right. You know, I've, I've I've had this riff where you know people often say crypto or Bitcoin is a vaguely libertarian technology. I mean, technology is politically neutral, but it can still be. <laughs> crypto sort of if crypto is kind of libertarian, then AI is kind of communist and. Uh, and so even though we're ahead from the you know basic science of AI, China is willing to apply it. It's willing to turn the entire society into you know a face recognition surveillance state that's uh, you know far more intrusive, far more totalitarian than even you know Stalinist Russia was. I thought I'd get one that, that comes to technology. It's a narrower question than where I began. So uh, our team spent a lot of time thinking about semiconductors and the ecosystem around mm-hmm. it and the manufacture of semiconductors. I went back this week, you'd, you'd sent a note out, and I went back and uh, reread then uh, Nixon-Kennedy debates, where they were debating these two little islands off the coast of China that are part of Taiwan formerly, and deep, intricate debates. Taiwan is even more central today mm-hmm. to the uh, high-tech infrastructure for the world, TSMC itself, yes. and all of the uh, all, all of the subsidiary technologies around yes. it. I wonder what your sense is. So. We have a policy. It's our uh, one China policy and the communiques that flow from it. The Trump administration largely stayed with that. G- give me your sense of what would happen if that were upended, not necessarily through military force. Like, right, we didn't steal it. If it's coerced into those semiconductors not being available for and that the hand semiconductors not being as readily available to the West. What's your sense and how should we how should the private sector think about that as well? Well, um, you know, I, th- I think they're basically two um, cutting-edge semiconductor manufacturers: it's, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung. 
And uh, there were probably something like 30 semiconductor companies that were cutting edge uh, 20 years ago right. uh, or 30 years ago. And so it's, uh, it's gotten a lot more expensive. So these scale economies and, um, and, um, and so, and then you have these questions about, you know, how many semiconductors do you need that are really cutting edge versus how many can be these, you know, um, more cheap mass produced uh, things. But, uh, but yeah, probably, um, yeah, probably, you know, if, if you need a, if you're gonna have a self-driving car, that probably will require a, uh, a cutting edge semiconductor. And uh, that's where, you know, there's probably some weird way in which from an economic point of view, um, you can almost think of Taiwan as just, it's just this one company, it's, um, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor. And then, you know, the, the political questions are, you know, who really controls the company? Is it, you know, is, is it, does the Chinese Communist Party have hooks into it? Um, or, you know, are they still more scared of them? But, uh, but somehow the, the board corporate politics of Taiwan Semiconductor are probably in some ways a proxy for all of Taiwan. <laughs> On one other area of the whole tech, tech stacks, we're covering a lot of ground here. Um, we're, um, uh, Mike, maybe I'll ask you, we're, we're, and how do you think about the space race that's sort of emerging, you know, with, you know, some extent Russia, but even more with, with China and um, where, you know, they're sort of launching all these killer satellites and yeah. maybe space weapons or and a lot of this of course is you know very classified yeah a lot but of it's classified and and there's a lot of people that know more about it than I do but suffice it to say here here's a data point that's useful in 2019 the Chinese launched more missiles than the rest of the world combined mm-hmm. those are tests right they just have the resources the scale <laughs> of what they're doing to work to put up the right satellites to work to make sure they've got the capability uh, is staggering and they are moving very very quickly and so I don't want to say much about where we are from a parity perspective, but there will be uh, an enormous amount of energy and resources put into place so that whenever there's a conflagration somewhere in the world, mm-hmm. doesn't have to be a global one, uh, that space will be able to generate an awful lot of leverage and an awful lot of power for some country who gets this most right. But I'm a interesting there towards the end where they mentioned space and how it's a a driving force for China right now and how it seems to be a driving force for a lot of uh, international businesses around the world, uh, including the States. Now, um, I want to touch on one particular person who I felt kind of got this right off the bat and his name is Belias. Uh, He was the, uh, Previous CTO for Coinbase, uh, he's he's well known in the crypto and Bitcoin space. He said, "What Peter actually said jokingly is that the euro and Bitcoin can be considered Chinese weapons against the dollar, as they may be alternative reserve currencies." Obvious rhetorical overstatement meant to poke the U.S. for complaint complacency on innovation. He continues. Put another way, obviously, Teal does not consider the euro to actually be a Chinese plot against America. But China may favor the euro as part of a more multipolar world. In theory, they'd favor Bitcoin, too, 
though not in practice. A humorous remark turned into clickbait. Yeah, I felt like he encapsulated everything in a nutshell, just right off the bat. And I felt like there was a lot of people who kind of took this and ran with it the other way. Um, And that's kind of the problem with with the crypto and Bitcoin space is they run with these headlines, especially these outlets where they try to compete for, you know, for clickbait and they try to compete for these clicks. And it's really sad. There's, there's never any second thought to, to actually look at this stuff and spend time with it. And uh, it's fine with me. It leaves an open market for me, I guess. <laughs> um, I want to take this a step further because there's still a lot more we need to discuss and quite frankly, a lot of people overreacted on this because they're not actually seeing what actually is being discussed here. Um, they aren't they aren't upset by what Peter Thiel said. They're upset because they can't believe he said it. Now, a lot of us in the Bitcoin and crypto space for the longest time have always believed that Bitcoin was going to become the reserve currency of the world. You've heard me say it several times. There's prominent Bitcoin maximalists in the space that have always said it. There's even people writing their own legislation like Pierre Richard um, that's doing that currently right now because they feel that the United States is not doing enough with Bitcoin. Um, So, you know, hats off to them, you know, for trying to do that. But the reality is somewhat not what's really going on. If, if you look at just this past year, you could see that mining production is actually being taken place here in Texas alone. You can see that they're shoring up renewables. There's an exorbitant amount of, of money that's being printed, <laughs> right? Uh, you can also see there's a quiet kind of... Uh, race in in trying to get these projects that are on DeFi ramped up. There's all sorts of, you know, backdoor deals when it comes to venture capital money for NFTs and all of that kind of thing. The only thing that's not happening, as far as I can tell, is on the regulatory side, right? That's the only thing that's not actually taking place is on the regulatory side. There's a lot of cleanup being done globally by the United States, whether that's BitMEX or whether that's here in in New York State. But there's not a lot of um, guidance by the SEC or by the CFTC. And people think this was an effort to clear up and to make way for an ETF this year or possibly early next year. We'll see. But the fact remains that Peter Thiel was right. $185 trillion of debt has come in the last 20 years, and COVID has accelerated this debt. And (laughs) bonds are the only thing that people think are safe. But as you know, because we did our Bitcoin in March, rising bond yields, that's a thing, right? And people seem to think that um, bonds are going to save the day. But Bitcoin seems to be a trend. 
And that's a good thing because assets that thrive when the bond yield is rising do so because they can demonstrate future growth. And that's what Bitcoin is doing, especially while being reasonably priced to reflect the positive return. If an asset was overpriced, like much of the tech sector, you know, especially in the dot-com and the 2000 era, it would eventually come under pressure, just like we saw 21 years ago. Back then, a 6.5% yield proved too much to handle. This time, 1.5% was enough to slow the march. Bitcoin's resilience against a rising bond yield and sensitivity to it is telling us this is a highly innovative growth asset, right? Probably the most bullish case for Bitcoin is that it's an open source project that is fueled by innovation. Not to mention MIT is doing the heavy lifting for it, right? So secret, we have all the devs. <laughs> we control the GitHub, <laughs> right? And we're working on the mining now. We just need the U.S. to start working on the accumulation. We seized enough of it. We just didn't keep any of it. Right. So. What does this all mean? Well, according to Jeff Booth and his new book, The Price of Tomorrow, which is a fascinating read, he takes this idea that Peter Thiel, who has pitched that Bitcoin needs to be acted upon by the United States or else, which quite frankly means we're going to get left behind, right? Because it's every man for himself, which means every country for themselves out there because times are changing, <laughs> right? This is, this is a new world that we're living in, right? Well, Jeff Booth talks about this in his new book, and he explains how this new world looks now and how Bitcoin resolves a lot of these problems and how China fits in almost to the T. Take a listen. Concepts that we talk about. So, government to today, one of the concepts about Bitcoin is bad for the climate. Right, it uses energy. Now, let's dig a little bit on on that um, and say. So, number one, I think you know this: that Bitcoin searches for low cost energy, and so it actually helps the grid of solar expand. And it uh, and 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 that should happen. It should con continue to advance uh, solar because it's Bitcoin miners are constantly searching for the lowest cost energy. But that's actually the small part of the conver conversation. The bigger part of the conversation is, is this: 
technology, including energy, is deflationary. And so energy is 9% of the global GDP, and it's a number one input of everything else we do. A lot of things become, they work or they don't work because of energy. In fact, the the in, in, entire, entire oil, um, uh, U.S., uh, on oil reserve, everything else was about energy, low cost, low, low cost and energy, securing energy. And it's a geopolitical game. But now, now you have new solar, not ready to transition all to solar or renewables, but you have new energy competing at the lowest cost additive to the energy grid. So that must therefore be deflationary and additive to deflation that we're already talking about on a kind of an exponential layer because it talks it cuts across everything now what do you do as a government because what you're trying to do what you're saying is i care about climate so i'm going to fund innovation and climate to reduce planet climate damage co2 emissions and every time that you increase more energy from lower cost clean energy it's lower cost and so i have to offset that lower cost by printing money to make oil prices go up to make other things work to be able to buy more and more and more so um the existing monetary system of the world you cannot grow forever on a finite finite planet growth with technology is different than growth for the last hundred years Growth with technology makes things free or lowers the cost so much that they, it changes the economic calculation. And that's the thing that people are really missing. It's a, and, it's a, and it's a big deal. It's impossible to cl- solve climate um, out of the existing system. In fact, the existing system is the cause of climate change. So, so, so think about what's happening right, right now geopolitically, and this is connected. The, so... So China's printing more than the US to keep their dollar lower, to keep their labor rate lower, so that we buy more, so US buys more goods. And US is trying to uh, devalue their dollar to be able to gain jobs, lower their labor rate when technology is, because ta- if you lower your labor rate, then technology won't take the jobs as fast. So that's what's happening all over the world. And it's kind of a race to the bottom on currency. More and more of, the, of this is happening. And that is creating the same geopolitical tension um, around, around the world. Communism is defunded by a free market. If there's anybody that knows this, it's the U.S. The U.S. was founded on, on these principles and the rights of the individual in a free, in a free market. And, and so the only way to control citizens is through if, if, if you, if you actually, so I suspect that, that the best way for, for the U S to actually kind of emerge, emerge or really strong out of this is to embrace Bitcoin because China won't embrace Bitcoin. So when you say embrace, do you mean hold it as a reserve asset? So sell our gold and buy Bitcoin? Like what, what, what is embrace? How does that manifest itself? I suspect that that'll happen eventually. Um, and it might happen quietly uh, uh, early on. But first, it'll be uh, uh, regulation around the on-ramps, off-ramps, and the whole new industry ecosystem that is, uh, that is that understands where technology is going 
and why that's a good thing for uh, for humanity. There's a lot there to unpack, and I know these concepts might seem a little too foreign. And when I first heard this the first time, it was really hard to wrap my head around it. Now, let me kind of break it down for you um, clearly, okay? So, if we go back earlier when Peter Zihan was talking about how the world is fundamentally changing right now and how there's certain countries who are in this kind of pecking order to do really well over this next decade with COVID and all these other, you know, things that are either built into our um, countries, whether it's um, the abundance of humans living there or the age that we're in or the consumerism, whatever that is. Um, Peter Zihan was talking about how there are certain countries that are that are positioned well than others. Now, if we fast forward to what Peter Thiel was talking about, how Bitcoin is fundamentally going to help countries, right? And how he sees it as, you know, countries can save themselves, get on the Bitcoin train, don't miss this innovation. Um, this is going to save these countries, right? This is what Peter Thiel was trying to say to, to the Americans at the Nixon seminar. This is what he was trying to tell them, right? These are all the people in, in positions of power. He was trying to get them to understand that America is falling behind, even though we're not really falling behind. He was just trying to get them to try to light a fire underneath them to say, hey, let's lead in this innovation. Hey, let's try to make this a reserve currency. Hey, let's do everything we can to uh, make sure that America is leading here with Bitcoin. So if you listen to what Jeff Booth is saying, he kind of drops several things here. He says, not only with Bitcoin, and, and this is actually factually true because as you know, we have friends here in Austin and uh, one of those people, uh, gosh, I haven't talked to him in like a year, but uh, gosh, I forgot his name too. <laughs> and he probably listens. Uh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Anyways, um, when he's when I used to talk to him about mining all the time, he's always tell me how he's always looking for the like, I forget the name of it because I don't really know about electricity the way he does. But the way he would always explain it to me when he would just <laughs> run it in my ear the whole time was that. It's all about the kilowatt per, uh, gosh, and I forget what he would call it, but he would always say it's about the electricity and how you would try to get it as low as you possibly could. 
And he would he would say like there was certain places here in, in the central Texas area that he could go to. And depending on what type of uh, miners he had, he could he could always get a really good price. Then um, he would talk to me about it and I would just listen because it was over my head on a lot of this stuff. But I, I knew that he knew his shit and he would always say, like, it doesn't matter, car. It's just it's about what you're paying on, on the wattage or on, on the electricity. And that's how you're going to be profitable. And I would I would believe him because he knows what he's talking about. He's making a lot of money doing it. Anyways, we've had him on the show before. Actually, we did his. Um, I was actually the one of the speakers for for one of his events during South by. Anyways, so I, I definitely know what Jeff Boo is talking about right there when he says that, because where there's a will, there's a way we're definitely going to find you're already seeing it here in Texas because my 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 brother is in that uh, is in the natural gas industry here in South Texas. And you're already seeing some companies reach out to his 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 company and companies that he knows about mining Bitcoin with the natural gas and how all that's going to fit together. So that's already happening here in Texas. So you're finding you're already finding ways to outsource whatever you can to mine Bitcoin because there's money to be made for uh, for Bitcoin. Right. Because there's only going to be twenty one million. And and when that goes, when that becomes too expensive, they're going to try to find another way to do it cheaper. And it's just, it's a race to the bottom. Right. And then that helps everybody in this area in, in America and in the world, because this this gets power relatively cheaper for everybody. Right. So that's one thing there. The other thing that he's talking about is 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 Moore's law. Right. This is the exponential progress that we see, right? Exponential increases of the number of transistors on integrated circuits. This is the, this is what they teach you in computer science 101. Um, you know, Moore's law is the observation that the number of transistors on integrated circuits doubles approximately every two years. This is why everything gets cheaper when it comes to, you know, Macs, laptops, you know, RAM, <laughs> SSDs, everything, right? Um, it's just that it doubles and it's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, what we're seeing is that this all happens in time. It's, it's one of the reasons why we haven't seen that happen so fast for like 3D printing, right? If you go back to 3D printing when it came out, what was it like in the early 2010s, 2010s, I think it was. We haven't really seen 3D printing really go anywhere as of late, right? I think the last big thing we saw was they made a gun out of it and then it's been quiet. But it's still innovating because it is. And eventually, I think last year we saw them, they were making houses with 3D printing. Well, fast forward 10 years from now or even 15, 20 years from now, they'll be doing much bigger things with 3D printing. Right. So you're starting to see that exponentially all these all these uh, innovations will just start increasing over time and everything gets relatively cheaper. This is what Jeff Booth is talking about. He's talking about how. There is always progress when it comes to increasing these uh, these ideas, these uh, these efficiencies with computing. And we have to move into this deflationary world, which is Bitcoin, in order to see that this inflationary technology world that is increasing, that's making everything free and abundant, for everybody, because that's what it is. That's what it's doing, right? We'll offset that going the other way. This is going to continue as a decade goes on. And the the COVID 
pandemic really has turned that exponential growth on the tilt and, and made it happen at a faster rate. And I think there's people like Peter Thiel uh, and, and then Jeff Booth that are recognizing that, right? Um, that, that are seeing this happen in real time that are saying, hey, these are the things that we need to start watching out for because Bitcoin is going to solve a lot of them. Um, Bitcoin is the key here to, to fixing this abundant future that we're walking into because deflation is going to solve this. This is why you have a lot of Bitcoin maximalists try to tell people these things, but no one's listening. And the harder that we try to uh, put this off or the, the harder that we try to make this current uh, situation that we're in now where we just keep doing this printing and, and we're, we're trying to we're trying to make this world last a little longer the way it is now for the sake of uh, our grandparents and our parents and, and these boomers that want the world the way it is now for the sake of them. Um, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's hurting a lot of people. And, and unfortunately it's going to make everything a lot worse for everybody in the long run. So we need to start transitioning into this deflationary world and Bitcoin is going to help us do that. So take a listen to Jeff Booth as he explains all of this and kind of gives you in a nutshell of what that looks like. It's pretty fascinating. Take a listen. something is abundant, truly abundant, it becomes free. And why is that true? It's because there's on abundance, you can't create an economic value around abundance. And, mm-hmm. and it's why the air you're breathing right now is free. Right. And the air you breathe underwater is not free. Mm-hmm. It, it's because it's very difficult to create uh, and, technology, right, right. And, and technology is creating that abundance everywhere. And as it's creating more of that abundance, look at it, look at how many photos you use today versus mm-hmm. how many photos people used 20 years ago when they cost a lot of money to develop film. And then you'd go to the, uh, go to the photo processor and realize your whole roll of film was garbage <laughs> and, and, and you miss the moment. Now, now it's free in the cloud. 
right? And you have billions of photos at your disposal um, and there's no cost for it. And so you get an exponential move in abundance happening right. and right. fall in price. And it's hard to, Kodak went out of business from not being able to see how their business could monetize differently, even though they invented the digital camera. Right, yeah. Right. So, so, so starting with oxygen, and then coming down and think about now, look at the apps that have your listeners look at the apps on their phones and, and, and what they probably think is, Oh, they're only on that because they're getting advertising dollars. That's not true. Once you create a calculator app on the phone, never have to create it again. Hmm. Um, it's free. You don't buy calculators anymore. Same as your, whether you can in 2013, a LiDAR device, um, I, there's an article that talks about LiDAR never making it uh, into into cars because the LiDAR device was $70,000. It's a $5 bill of material on the newest iPhone. It's embedded wow. into the te technology. So that is deflation and it gives us more and more for less and new business models are emerging all the time to give us more for less that we're taking advantage of. And so that what that means, and it's moving everywhere as we move from a physical world into a more digital world, it's not just in your phone anymore. It's moving into a base layer of everything. Hmm. So, so the, the rate of uh, rate of deflation and what should be happening and is not because of monetary easing is staggering and it's getting worse and worse. So the, the printing of money is an offset to try to make things grow unnaturally against uh against a natural force of technology wanting to give you more for less hmm. and, and I, just one more ad yeah you know this from the book and uh but it took uh, so we should see evidence of what i'm saying and that's why i could but why the book was written before covid but it predicted all of these things mm -hmm. um it, we should see evidence over the last 20 years. If technology is moving exponentially this way, wanting to give us more for less, we should see exponentially more printing on the other side. Fair. Right. Yeah. To hold us in check at a 2% inflation rate or mm -hmm. And, and that's what you see. And you see over the last 20 years to be able to, to pretend we have growth. Mm -hmm. um, there's been $185 trillion of stimulus. Right. Yeah, which and, is and, growing and exponentially over time. Yeah, exactly. It has to because most of the deflation is in front of us, mm -hmm. not behind of us. That's just trying to keep up with. So this, the more and more instability that's been building in the system, is a direct cause of the technology moving the other way. But it's just starting. Most of the deflation is in front of us, hmm. which it means the the printing the printing presses are just start firing up. The printing is making the world more and more and more unstable because it's dividing it, it's it's enriching some at the expense of others at a rate that is increasing with each print Infla inflation um if you looked at inflation or deflation inflation the other side of the coin of inflation is wage deflation mm. it's one and the same right right so so right I, i'm making i'm making my money worth less and I'm making my wages worth worth less, so I'm giving people wage decreases, mm -hmm. it, and it's one and the same. And by doing that, I'm inflating uh, uh, pr prices of hard assets like 
uh, uh, raw materials, uh, um, like houses and everything else are going up at the rate of inflation as people look for stores of value against the, uh, against currency devaluation mm-hmm. and, and everybody else is getting their pocket picked. Right. So, so it, it, I find it a, a, a certain irony in, and by the way, changing an actor in the system won't change the system. No matter if it's Republican, Democrat, no matter who it is in the system, the system will not change because it's it's a structural problem. Right. So, so imagine saying, okay, I've created a whole bunch of wealth inequality because everybody who owns assets, the people who own assets, who own stocks, who um, who own houses and everything else, they're getting a gift through inflation. Those prices are going up. And the yeah. people who don't own them are getting their pocket picked because their 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 income is going down in relation to that. Right. So and it gets worse and worse. So now imagine in this world this Frankenstein monster that we've created. Now I hold prices unnaturally high on one side. Let's use commercial real estate as an example. Mm-hmm. Commercial real estate should not be priced anywhere near where it is right now in the height of covid. Right. <laughs> and it's higher. Mm-hmm. So that seems like an outlier, but it's not an outlier. So it stocks, everything else follow that same model. So I hold prices high unnaturally by printing money. Mm-hmm. And then a whole bunch of people can't pay for those prices because their rents go up higher and everything else, because it has to offset how much the the new price is worth. Mm-hmm. And, and now I need to give them money that I don't have to be able to pay for the prices I unnaturally held high. Right. And the whole thing keeps on reinforcing. So you get divide of society and, and, and further and further divide of society by where we are here mm-hmm. on, this, on the scale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, t- today there's over $130 trillion of negative real interest bonds. So in other words, the risk-free rate, $130 trillion and every other economic calculation, houses, stocks, everything else are built on top of that mm-hmm. essentially risk-free rate. Right. So the safest place I can store my money, it, what you would think would be the place where it's risk-free and I would make the lowest return. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that would be pegging for all other calculations. So, so now you have negative real interest rates in that whole stack. Mm-hmm. So on my best day, if I hold this bond, I lose money. Right. <laughs> on my best day, right? <laughs> I hold this bond to maturity. I lose money, but I know that governments, it's never going to be a best day. It's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing is a lot of this money sitting here, realizing that it has ultimate risk. It isn't risk-free and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And that's actually what's driving Bitcoin adoption as well, because as people start to see, wait, Bitcoin might actually have, in my opinion, it has way less risk than this. But uh, but but if that's the risk-free rate, where do I go to be right. able to? And then as money leaves that system into a new system that competes against that system, what would you do as a government? Right. Because interest rates have to go up to to be able. You see the ten-year bond yeah. going yield going through the roof right now. Mm-hmm. It has to go way higher. So do all the, and and if it goes way higher 
to keep money in the system, then the entire economy collapses, but there's nothing backing the entire economy. It's just a bunch of counterparty risk. It's just debt all the way down to the sand, that 130 yeah. trillion. There's no gold back. There's nothing backing it. Right. It's just because I say it's, it's good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and now as money leaves that system into a, a new system and interest rates go up, the, the has to be a response to be able to buy it all to print right. way more. I wear this crown of thorns upon my liar's chair, full of broken thoughts I cannot repair. Beneath the stains of time, the feelings disappear you are someone else I am still right here what have I become my sweetest friend everyone I know goes away So now you see why there's such a big importance with Bitcoin these days, right? Um, you literally can see it from the beginning of this episode until now. You, you can see that full 360 approach that we talk about uh, here on Thriller Premium, you know, week to week, month to month. You can see this now, right? You can you can see it from start to finish here an hour and 15 into this podcast. You can see that what what we were talking about early in this episode about bond yields to now what Jeff Booth is talking about, how this whole financial system can collapse just because of this money printing that's just continuing on. But the one thing that's saving us is Bitcoin from this. The one thing, and, and then this is what Peter Thiel was talking about. This is what a lot of people in the Bitcoin and crypto space, if they would have just taken the time, <laughs> they would have just taken a little bit of more time, you know, done a little bit more research, you know, spent a little bit more time before releasing that headline and said, hey, let's look, let's look about what that's digging a little deeper here. This is what he's talking about. This is why it's so important for the United States to really go in and start allocating into Bitcoin. It's because of this. It's because of this. It's because of what he just said. And this is why it's important for you and your family. And this is why it's important for me to explain this to y'all. 
And and this is why, you know, I, I you know, I, I didn't say this here recently on the previous episode, but I got a lot of emails from not from any of y'all, but like from from people because, you know, we do our Bitcoin, you know, our monthly Bitcoin email. I'm going to I'm going to divert here for a second just for the sake of uh, giving you a little bit of a uh, into my world. But, you know. On a monthly basis, you know, we, we do a Bitcoin monthly newsletter, as you know, and that goes out to everybody who's subscribed, right, to this newsletter. And that's a lot of people in the Bitcoin and crypto space. But a lot of people are, you know, are are casual listeners, right? They're, they like listening to Carr because he gives them the, you know, the charts and, and they like listening in on a monthly basis. And that's cool with them. But a lot of people emailed in after that episode because they were upset that when I got to the coin talk section, I literally just did not <laughs> give them a coin talk section. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that episode, but I, it was something to the likes of all this is crap or something. Don't invest, <laughs> don't invest in any of this. You should be investing in Bitcoin. It was something like that. Um and, and yes, it was kind of short and brief, but I wasn't doing it to be a jerk. I, I was doing it to make a point. And the point was what was this. And what we're seeing now is that we're in the end game, ladies and gentlemen. Like, this is serious business. Like, um, what type of person would I be telling you to go invest in some kind of altcoin right now when the best thing you can do for you and your family is invest in Bitcoin which is going to be the reserve asset that a lot of these countries are going to move into. Right. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like I, I, and I couldn't sleep at night knowing that I told somebody to go, you know, invest in dot or Cardano or something like, no, that's just, that's just beyond <laughs> what I want to, you know, I don't want to sleep at night knowing I did that. Right. And, um, um, yeah. So that's kind of my, insight into what my world looked like a week ago when I, when we released that episode, got a lot of emails. People were complaining about that. People didn't like that. I did that. They thought it was, uh, you know, mean spirited, um, all sorts of stuff. But at the time it was really to, to kind of hit home with Bitcoin is going to save a lot of people here who end up, not seeing what is going on. And what's really going on is this abundant future that we're moving towards. And this is exactly what Jeff Booth is talking about. And this is, this is explained here. Now he moves on to how Bitcoin actually fixes this, which is even more awesome. (laughs) So, so take a listen now to how he talks about how deflation, how, how, Everybody always talks about how deflation is bad, right? Oh, deflation is bad, but it's not bad. Deflation is not bad, especially money-wise, when you when you live in a world that's abundant. You know, when everything is when everything is abundant out there, right? Take a listen.
2008, uh, in, in, in my company at that time, we had uh, uh, we saw the firsthand effects of what was going to be TARP before TARP. Okay. And what ended up happening is we had fully funded LCs that wouldn't be accepted by counterparty banks in other countries. Hmm. So, so trade broke down. Yeah. It stopped. it stopped for three days. Nobody would accept. And, and you're going to wait, wait, the money's there. It's fully fun. Yeah. And, and, and nobody cared because they didn't trust the banking institution that where the money was there. Cause it's not money. It's just, a, it's right. just a belief in money. It's a belief. It's a, it's a ledger entry. Mm-hmm. And, and so once that belief is broken, it just keeps unwinding. And so you'd, you'd see this system that requires a technology, it requires a currency that allows for deflation. That is unequivocal. We have to have that for society to thrive. But the existing system, it would, it would reset the entire system because you'd see the emperor has no clothes and it would just keep, mm-hmm. and that counterparty risk would keep coming down all the way to the ground. So remember in 2008, and the outrage at $250 billion. Right. <laughs> outrage. Yeah. And that was a saving the system. And then it required more. Mm-hmm. And it required ever more. And now we're into trillions and trillions. And pretty soon we'll be into tens of trillions. And people start asking. And so could you keep doing that if you were one country and your citizens allowed you to do that forever? Maybe. Um, yeah, because your citizens would have to say, you, they would have to agree. Um, okay, I'm going to do this. Effectively, government. There is no free market. Government controls who gets what, and I'm going to just let government do that. Because mm-hmm. because that is that's what that is, right? I print my and right. I effectively it's distributing it to the top people. Mm-hmm. But then government could say, no, no, no. I'm going to create an economy over here. I'm going to give the bottom people this type of money. Mm-hmm. That always leads you away from the free market. That always leads into control by the biggest thug. Right. Right. Oh, 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 throughout always. history. Yeah. Always. And, and, and managed economies. If you widen your time band, not with what you think is happening in China right now, but if you widen your time band out to history, managed economies never outperform free market economies. Right. Because, because, because there's no way a certain number of people could outthink everyone. Right. And, and so, so a free market economy, and, and if you, if you buy that free market, so, so free market gives better living standards to everybody because an economy, the taxes that you pay are as a result of a free market. So you realize that centrally planned economies like Russia can't really survive without controlling uh, money and doing it and uh, in, in biggest thought. Mm-hmm. And so those are the two kind of ends of the spectrum um, that, uh, and, and, and we're moving in and right now, the world is moving into more central planning, everyone mm-hmm. right? with more, more money printing, you're removing the free market and it's all central planning. So um, we've got a bright future ahead of us. At some point we get, just because of the nature of how technology is progressing, um, at some point globally, we have a, we have a system, a deflationary system um, that uh, where, where technology has replaced a lot of labor, but ultimately, like we look at that, like you said, and we don't want that to be true. We're scared of that. We don't think that's a good thing, but ultimately that's, it's not utopian, but it's, 
it's it's close because there's a lot of things that require a lot of labor right now that won't in the future. You 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 don't need UBI as a solution because it's free or close to it to have your basic living needs and expenses covered, right? Like that's the long-term future that we have in front of us. So, and, and think about that. So, so why people can't see that on a free, on a free market is they think, well, because their, com- their comparative set is the current environment of misallocated prices and prices here. And they can't see the, how good that could look. Yeah. And I, I know you can, and, but now just carry that forward. Let's imagine an industry that has high margins and a whole bunch of people that don't need to work they, because they have everything for free, but they want to. Mm-hmm. What do you think they would go after? The high margins. Isn't that how things right. would work? So wouldn't all of those things be disrupting at a crazy rate to right. bring them down lower in price too? Yeah. It, it, and, and so, so the point of, now the transition between systems and that that's not caused the transition between systems is not caused the the pain in that is not caused by what will happen no matter what the 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 technology or anything the transition um between systems the, the massive pain that's coming is because of trying to extend and pretend an existing system right and and the more you do that the more pain that's going to come in the transition yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And and so that's what people are, uh, they're so scared, but they don't know what to do. Yeah. They're so scared of what that, what that looks like, but they, uh, they don't know that it paralyzes them and they keep on doing what they did. And, and, uh, and you keep doing, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing to get the same result over and over again. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty irrational. Yeah. If you have, but that's what, that's what we're doing. So um, why, I, why I've become a, a, an advocate of Bitcoin um, is, is I think it's the best path for humanity to get to the other side. It still won't be, it still won't be easy, but if governments start to adopt it and work it into the current uh, currencies and peg to it, um, then it provides a transition from, uh, from the old system to a new system. And effectively what would happen is, if there's $400 trillion of entire assets of the world, yeah, eventually will be divided by 21 million Bitcoin. Right. Right. So, so because if you measured your world in Bitcoin today, mm-hmm. what you would see is everything's coming down in price. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a, it, 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 it is a currency. Could there be another, could there be something else that uh, uh, um, maybe, but, how fast it's growing and how fast of a network effect that it's building and that ecosystem that's building on its, uh, on itself. Um, I see it as a high likelihood to become a reserve, um, the reserve currency. And then mm-hmm. from there to be, uh, to be potentially be, um, we actually use it as a currency too, or the second layer on, on Bitcoin as a currency too. And if that, and, and so you can imagine Right now, you have this massive wealth inequality, um, and you uh, and there's no way that the world's millionaires could each one of them buy a Bitcoin. Right. 
Right. Yeah. A, so, so you realize, um, realize what that would do and change. And yes, some of the early people on Bitcoin would have more, but but the bigger thing is once that's done, um, the only way you actually retain your Bitcoin or retain power is by giving value to society. Yeah. Right. Right. So Otherwise, yeah. so so if you want if you want to be a rogue state, let's use uh, let's use China as example. Right? You want to you you want to uh, um, you want to control your society, then you or or let's just use let's say use let's not use a state. Let's use an individual who has ten thousand Bitcoin, and they decide, okay, I'm going to hire myself an army and everything else. To be able to have more control instead of giving value they're going to hire themselves in our army they're actually distributing bitcoin by doing that right that's true they're losing power by doing that yeah right so, so it's it it levels a playing field or something like it mm-hmm. levels a playing field and it forces uh and and and, and it forces um a, a transition to to where technology can be uh, provide broad-based abund- abundance Right. Yeah. Because like you say, there's winners and losers with every system. There's pros and cons with every system, but a deflationary system built on hard money means that the incentives are aligned so that moving ahead equals providing value to society. Whereas the current system is almost the opposite of that or going there. Yeah. Or or going there. That's exactly, but that's exactly the point point. fascinating that what he wanted to say i think was something to the likes of let's say uh, a country or world power gets out of line and they want to start a war well let's say hypothetically they start spending their bitcoin to start that war and they start running out of bitcoin <laughs> to fund that war well now they're in trouble Right. So the incentives are aligned for a much better and peaceful world because we're not fighting amongst each other anymore. Right. Because our incentives are aligned now. Now we're trying to live in a prosperous world. Right. We're trying to live in a happier, more functioning, cohesive world where 
We want to help one another where we want to not only see one another thrive, but we want to, we want to see one another excel as well too. Right. And I think Bitcoin can help do that. And, and this is what I like about Jeff's um, kind of idea about this deflationary world that he paints uh, in such an eloquent way. And, And so, you know, it's one thing for me to say buy Bitcoin and save the world um, when I started saying that back in 2017. Um, and I really believed that back then. Um, but when he starts uh, painting it out this way, it's when I start seeing that, oh, wow, it actually does save the world. And, and it makes us start appreciating each other in, in, in a different way uh, because it gets our incentives in line uh, and, and that's all it truly takes okay yeah I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Thriller Insider um, there's a lot to unpack there and uh, there's a lot of research that I did to, to, to get this episode ready for y'all. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that we really dived into what Peter Thiel's remarks really were. And, and they weren't anti-Bitcoin. They weren't anything to do with China. Uh, it had more to do with how the United States is complacent with, uh, with Bitcoin innovation and uh, Bitcoin allocation. Can we succeed in both? But we're already making strides in that direction. And I think a push in the Jeff Booth direction, where I think everybody in the world should want to be. 